Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A more threatening strain of the coronavirus is starting to show up, just as many public health safety measures are dropping off. The good news is vaccines are helping slow infections and prevent the most serious effects of COVID-19. We have two years of the pandemic behind us, but keeping up with the best ways to protect you and your family takes a lot of effort. Today we'll help out and get a rundown on where we are with the disease and what to keep an eye out for in the weeks ahead. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Students from Bethel and Dillingham schools in Alaska recently gathered to compete in the one-foot high kick and nine other Native Youth Olympics events. The games determine who from those schools will make it to state competition. KYUK's Olivia Eberts reports the games have a particular significance for students with Yupik heritage. The gym at Bethel Regional High School is as quiet as it can get. All eyes in the bleachers are on the court. Eighth grader Danielle Patterson is starting her pre-one-foot-high-kick ritual. If she gets this kick, she stands to beat her own personal record by four inches. Patterson stands in front of the seal and caribou-skin ball hanging by a string from a wooden post. She looks intently at the ball, then kicks her leg high and straight at it while pointing her toe like a ballerina. This is practice. She takes three large steps backwards to the starting line. And then I rock back and forth, and I always shake my hands because that, like, calms me down. Then she starts her approach. I try to run really fast and then try to do a slight jump stop so I can have my momentum. And her process must have worked. Patterson has just won the one-foot high-kick event with a personal record. I, I, I can't stop shaking after kicking 70. The one-foot high-kick is said to be a test of a hunter's strength and agility. Bethel Regional High School Athletic Director Darren Lieb said all these games have a special significance. These games kind of translated from inside a sod hut or whatever back in the early days, not only just to keep them busy and sane, but to keep them in shape. Another coach, Wilton Charles, says they've been played all over the Arctic. Though each place has its own variation, Charles is from Tuxuk Bay on the coast. He says the kneel jump has a particular meaning for coastal Yupiat. Our ancestors used to kayak with their knees on the base of the kayak and then nail jump out of the kayak. Charles and Lieb stress that these are just games and lots of the kids I talk to say that's what they love about the Native Youth Olympics. It takes some of the pressure off but it is still a competition too and a challenging one at that. The most skilled Native Youth Olympians will compete at the state tournament on April 20th in Anchorage. In Bethel, I'm Olivia Eberts. An article in the Chronicle of Higher Education points to progress made at Arizona State University in recruiting Native American faculty and students to the Tempe campus. Mark Richardson has more. Arizona is home to more than 20 tribes and about 400,000 indigenous citizens, but until the late 1990s, they were underrepresented at state universities. ASU founded the Center for Indian Education about 20 years ago in response to a growing number of indigenous students on campus. 
Center Director Brian Brayboy said there was a clear need to hire more Native faculty members. We wanted to get really intentional about listening to our students who were saying to us that they wanted more faculty that looked like them and they wanted to be seen. They felt invisible. And so we sat down and we made a plan to try to address that. Even though the Native students make up only about 1% of ASU's enrollment, many are the first in their family and in their community to attend college. Brayboy says that led them to recruit 60 Indigenous scholars in teaching positions. Mark Richardson reporting. Bemidji State University is hosting a series of events this week leading up to Earth Day on Friday. The university has partnered with several Minnesota colleges and universities to offer both events in person and virtually. Monday's agenda includes a discussion on Indigenous and Western science. A list of events can be found online at BemidjiState.edu. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 29th and 30th on the powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. You don't necessarily have to know about the BA.1 or BA.2 coronavirus subvariants to know that the threat from COVID-19 is still very real. If someone behind you in line at the grocery store is coughing and sneezing, the reality of the continued concern about COVID becomes much more present. At the same time, city, state, and tribal health officials have lifted most, if not all, mandatory public health safety measures for masks and maintaining social distance. If you're wearing a mask out in public these days, you're likely in the minority. There's lots of good news on the front lines of the pandemic, too, and we'll get the highlights and updates in the next hour. We'll take your questions as well. Are you keeping up with your vaccines and booster shots? Have you reached the end of your rope when it comes to keeping up with pandemic news? Join the conversation, the number 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open. Joining us today from Springville, New York, is Dean Seneca. He is an epidemiologist and the CEO of Seneca Scientific Solutions Plus. He is Seneca. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Dean. Hello, how are you? Thanks for having me. Doing wonderful. Thanks so much for asking, Dean. Also joining us on the show from Duluth, Minnesota, is Dr. Mary Owen. She is the director of the Center of American Indian and Minority Health at the University of Minnesota and the current president of the Association of American Indian Physicians. She's Tlinkit. Welcome back to the show as well, Mary. Mr. Chase, thank you for having me. You're welcome, Mary. Great 
discussion coming up. Looking forward to it. And joining us from Anchorage, Alaska is Dr. Bob Anders. He's the Alaska Native Medical Center Administrator. Welcome to the show, Dr. Anders. Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me. Well, Dean, start us off here. NAC listeners really want to know, COVID-19, how much longer here? Can we see the light at the end of the tunnel finally? No, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty, Um, especially as the the viruses uh, mutate and new mutations come out, you know, we're trying to monitor how this virus is actually taking root in the population. Um, And we still have a lot of areas throughout Indian country that, you know, although cases overall as the nation are going down, we still have many areas where cases are rising. Um, Albuquerque has an increase, Bemidji has a little increase. The Great Plains has actually a big increase in South Dakota. Um, you know, Nashville has a slight increase. Navajo Nation has uh, increased. Oklahoma City has a significant increase. And Phoenix actually has a significant increase. So we're, we're still seeing increases in cases uh, in Indian country, even though overall cases are, are going down throughout the whole nation. So this is by far uh, not over. And as we follow the science, um, you know, we're just trying to uh, you know, make sure that uh, these uh, variants uh, don't change to something that is, again, more, much more infectious, like Omicron, which was insanely infectious, something that we've never seen uh, ever before, something this infectious. Um, and what we're really concerned about, that it doesn't become more severe as it, as it mutates, and that, and that is uh, becoming more uh, deadly and more harmful. Yeah, I think everybody really, really is concerned about those mutations, and it just seems like it just they just keep coming back sooner or later. And and Dean, you mentioned these increases in many parts of of Indian country. Can you give us uh, some numbers, like percentage wise, like how large are some of these increases that you just mentioned? Uh, some of them are are very significant. You know, uh, uh, you know, going up from the previous week, so. You know, we do have some uh, data sources that I believe are very good. Actually, NCAI has a very good data source, I believe, their Center for Health Research. And they count cases uh, in the past uh, week by each IHS area, uh, service area. And if, you, and if you actually look at some of their data, you can see that the increases are significant by, um, by percentage. So... Um, you know, so, I mean, these increases are, are significant, you know, I, I don't, I, I would have to be able to show you some charts and things to be able to really explain it, but um, no, the, the, we're seeing some major gains uh, throughout Indian country. And what about hospitalizations and, and of course, deaths? Are, are we seeing increases in those areas as well? So hospitalizations overall are going down, but we're not going to see many hospitalizations to this slight increase for uh, probably another month uh, that we're seeing uh, um, uh, throughout Indian country. Um, and, and then deaths are, are slower, but, you know, we're seeing some communities throughout Indian country with significant amount of deaths. You know, um, some of our smaller communities, you know, 30 plus deaths. Um, 
you know, some of our larger tribal nations are reaching, you know, a total of 1,500 deaths, um, you know, and then some uh, in, in big chunks. So, for example, because of that big wave that we that Omicron hit at the end of January and um, the beginning of February, we're not we we saw a huge increase in deaths throughout all of Indian country in March. So we kind of got to follow that pattern, right? When we see these huge increases, it'll take about a month later to reflect in the data on hospitalizations and deaths. So right now, um, things are, are kind of at a steady hold um, and kind of flattening out, but we could see these numbers go up as we're seeing cases go up right now. Okay. And then of course, everybody has questions about the masks and the mandates and, you know, here me driving around Albuquerque, going into stores. Um, I, I see some masks, but, but probably the vast, vast majority of people are not wearing masks. So I, I'm just curious. I mean, are, are we safe now, uh, to just not wear masks? Which, what's the thought on that? No, I think what we need to do is really monitor what the local conditions look like. If you're seeing an increase in cases in your local area, your local county, municipality, I think, you you know, the wise thing to do is to put the mask back on and really adhere to safe social distancing. Um, but if your case counts are low, um, well, then, you know, you can get away with not wearing the mask. Um you know, but here's the thing: uh, we don't really have good surveillance throughout uh, throughout the whole country. Um, if you really look at it, and if you compare our country, the United States, to other countries like in Europe, and you know, um, uh, some other countries overseas like Israel, that have you know much better surveillance than we do, much better you know vaccinations and testing, um, you'll see that. Um, that, you know, we're significantly undercounting. So, for example, the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation recently did kind of this study real quick, and they said for every 100 cases in the U.S., only six or seven of them are reported, right? So if you have uh, 27,000 cases, for example, that's literally, literally, really, like close to 404,000 cases, you know? So they're saying that basically there's a few factors. One is we're doing less testing right now. Um, many people are actually uh, have bought in, which is a good thing, to the antigen test, and they're testing for home. But guess what? They're not reporting that information. Um, as of March 22nd, providers are no longer able to submit claims for tests for uninsured patients. Um, it's going to be that's going to have a huge impact um, because what we're going to see, like we did in the beginning of the pandemic, the poorest neighborhoods will have even more depressed case numbers than some of the higher income neighborhoods, right? And then we also have the asymptomatic cases, right? When you have asymptomatic cases and you have continual asymptomatic cases, um, you know, they could be infected with COVID, the case could be mild, you know, not feel like a cold, but still they're infected and they could still spread the virus. So, you know, um, there's some things that are going on that basically say that, yes, these things are going up, but the estimates are, are very, inaccurate because there's a significant amount of uh, non-reporting uh, and uh, and underestimating. 
Well, and you know, you mentioned that the reporting, you, you mentioned the testing and all. And, and I remember very early on in the pandemic, there was so much talk about tracking the spread of the virus across the country, contact tracing. And I'm curious, is that still going on? Are there efforts to continue to do that? Or they just kind of let that go? Um, first off, I wanted to say that, you know, I, I've done outbreak response. Um, I've done um, my the biggest uh, outbreak that I was involved with was the Ebola outbreak. And, you know, uh, my my area of expertise and my role in that out in that response was um, teaching folks, uh, the Africans in, in their native villages how to what the role and response was and specifically contact tracing so i just wanted to say as a country overall we've done a terrible job in contact tracing with uh covid 19. i mean just awful um but right now a lot of people have been relaxing on the whole contact tracing um concept you know many of our state health departments have really backed away especially as hospitalizations um go down um you know, we're starting to look at other surveillance methods. So, you know, um, we we haven't uh, in a unified format as a as a whole country, as a whole nation, you know, really, um, you know, put forth a valid unified effort when it comes to contact tracing. We just haven't done a good job. Um, so, I would say most people are are relaxing from actually doing effective contact tracing. Not all. There's a lot of parts throughout the country that are doing very, very uh, good contact tracing. And we have some parts throughout Indian country that are doing good contact tracing. And here's the thing with that. Okay. Contact tracing okay. is very effective. Sure. We're going to go have to take a break, Dean, but I'm going to let you finish those thoughts when we come back. And listeners, if you have any questions or comments today, we are talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. We're getting insights. We're getting updates on where we are at in this two-year ordeal. 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call. We'll be back right after this short break. It's important to take advantage of the best modern medicine has to offer, but keeping in touch with traditional culture and spirituality can have additional health benefits. We'll explore the science behind improving your health by paying attention to your mental wellness. That's coming up on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thanks for tuning in today to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Are you keeping up with the ever-changing recommendations on the pandemic? Did you stop paying attention a year ago? We're getting updates on the basics today, and you are welcome to chime in. The number 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. 
And before we went to break, we were listening to Dean Seneca, and he was giving us some background on contact tracing and uh, what's going on in terms of contact tracing or not going on here in the U.S. So, Dean, please finish your thoughts. Oh, thank you. So um, I guess what uh, the point I was getting to is that um, you know, most of our communities uh, throughout Indian country are in rural settings, and contact tracing is still very effective in rural settings. Um, I urge many of our tribal communities, if you are in a rural setting and you are, you know, to get a good handle of the COVID-19 situation in your community, to go to contact tracing by walking your community actually engaging, going door to door, knocking on doors, you know, and then while you're doing surveillance related to COVID, you can do surveillance related to many other things, many other allied health situations or problems, as well as get an idea of what are the needs of that household or that, you know, that facility or that community that you've uh, visited. So, um, you know, I think we need to get back to our roots when it comes to this contact tracing um, in our uh, native communities. Well, thanks, Dean. And, and I appreciate those those suggestions because it sounds like really what, what we can do as Native people is just take a more active role in the process as opposed to being spectators and, and really get involved, like you mentioned, going door to door and, and just um, keeping track of this information on our own. So I think that's really, really helpful. Let's bring Dr. Mary Owen into the conversation now. And Mary, this, this, these variants, are, or can we even call them variants anymore? I'm not sure. But what do we know about this, this latest one related to Omicron? We know that it's uh, much more highly transmissible. People don't seem to be getting quite as sick from it. But um, again, if you have not been vaccinated, then you are, of course, still susceptible to um, more severe, severe illness. But um, vaccination, again, is the key um, I just looked at the latest CDC data and hospitalizations actually across the nation, not in necessarily in Indian country. I appreciate hearing from uh, Dr. Seneca on um, that data, but across the country, hospitalizations trends are stabilizing, meaning that they're not going down any longer. So I think that's an indicator that we are still quite susceptible to um, uh, this virus and all of its different variants. And he also mentioned the, um, you know, we still are are very, it's very possible that we could get much worse variants in the fall than what we're seeing with this latest B2 variant of Omicron, which again, doesn't seem to be hitting people as hard, though they are being hospitalized um, still. So. I, I think that's a, a lot of people's biggest fear is that we're going to we're going to get this an, another wave, another really bad variant come fall. And that's kind of how it played out last year. Right. Like things kind of went back mm-hmm. to normal during summer and kind of we all thought we we're out of the woods and then bang, Omicron hit. And we were right back to the lockdowns. We we're back to the masks and, and so many of these other measures. So and again, it kind of speaks to this whole idea of new normal, as as President Biden has phrased it. And in when what is that new normal and, and when are we do you think we're going to actually reach that when it comes to the pandemic well i think a new normal as far as protections for us would be in the particularly in the falls right now we're not out of that phase where we can start taking off our masks safely because again we're seeing these increases in rates in the south or in the um northeast or just the eastern part of our country as well as in our tribal nations. So masks shouldn't be coming off yet, even though you get just the opposite message, it seems. And that's partly from our um, our low public health response, our underfunding of our public health. The norm should also be in the falls. We can in the fall when we expect not just COVID, but flu virus and uh, other viruses, colds 
um, you know, for a long time, we've seen different segments of our population know that they need to have masks. We should think about the same thing. When we're in that infectious season, we don't have good protections. We don't have a great public health system in um, infrastructure in this country. Plan on wearing masks. That's a norm during those infectious times. And now, while we're still in a pandemic, the other norms would be um, always, you know, think like public health would advise us that regular hand washing, staying away from people who are sick. If you're sick, don't be going to work and or don't go to work and contaminate everybody else at at work. More um loose or recognition by a bosses that sick people shouldn't be at work, particularly if they're in a setting where they're in contact with lots of other folks, like at a school or a restaurant. And Those kind of basic steps that are taken in public health in other countries, as Mr. Seneca mentioned. Uh-huh. And regarding masks, I, I know there's been a lot of debate over which masks are most effective. And, and these cloth masks, do they cut it? Do we really need to get those higher grade style surgical masks? Or what's the recommendation there with regard to the type of masks that people wear? Nothing, but not much in some of these cases. Um, it's so frustrating to see so many people with uh, pulling their um, balaclava, not balaclavas, the head um, scarves or the uh, that tight thing around their face up over the, it doesn't do anything. You can see, you can right, see their mouth right through it. So yes, the surgical masks are definitely the better option for people and they're cheap. They're cheap and we're starting to see, or I have seen them in every place that I walk into it these days. So those are definitely the better option for our public. And remember, you're not necessarily protecting yourself when you wear that mask, you're protecting others from your spray or for the um, uh, particles that come from your nasal and um, respiratory uh, system. So uh, definitely the surgical style, they are not expensive, are better than the cloth, but if you don't have anything, then that cloth, if you're going to use cloth, try to double, um, put two layers at least. Yeah, two layers. I know we were traveling on a, on a plane the other day and my wife made sure that my daughter had her, or all of us had double masks and it it seemed to, um, it definitely felt safer that way. Mary, the boosters, I, I think we're now up to the third booster um, for those that are eligible or it's recommended. Who are those people that should be thinking about these this third booster that's out now? Uh, people, it's the second booster, I believe. I'm sorry, the second people booster. Who, yeah, see, the people who are age, it's approved for people who are age 50 and older or for the last vaccine for J&J, I believe, um, uh, any age. And But the people who should be thinking about it are folks who are immunocompromised or who are, you know, quite a bit older, I would say. But and if you are 50 and older and concerned, then you can get it. Um, some folks, I just read a good, um, I can't remember the reference either, uh, article that talked about, you know, I'm older than 50 now. Do I want to get that second booster yet? I might wait until fall when I know it's going to get much worse or um, until you know, if I have to be somewhere where um, I might compromise other people, some, although I am in the health setting, so I probably will get mine. But um, in general, for anybody 50 and up or immunocompromised folks is who is available for now. Okay. Well, Mary, thank you so much for those updates and those insights. And we do have a caller on the line, Richard, listening on KNBA in Anchorage, Alaska. Richard, thanks for calling in. You are on the air. Yes, hi. Um, thank you. Good morning. Um, I'm just speaking on a historical and a spiritual level with COVID. Um, Father Norman that I've listened to um, from Colorado has been open about we're done with COVID, the historical 
and the factual evidence of COVID, the cases that we were lied to by the Dr. Fauci, and he admitted to it because of the masks, and we had to lie to you to protect the people who needed them when it went from don't worry about wearing a mask to wear a mask to mandating a mask. And then all of a sudden, the flip-flopping, and we lied to you because we, we had to to protect those. So they already lied to us. You know, the credibility is all gone now. We've already established that the CDC, Fauci, have been wrong, inconsistent all the way through. And yet we hear people like the previous callers talking about cases. Now, the only reason we have cases embedded in our psychology right now is to fan more fear just like governments do historically, in order to keep the fear going to control the masses. And this is a 99 point whatever. Okay, Richard, I'm going I'm to go ahead and let one of our guests respond to that. And Dean, uh, I'd like you to respond to, to Richard's comments. And, and I, I think we would all agree that there have been some credibility issues and, and maybe some miscommunication, maybe misinformation. I don't know what the right, right word is to describe some of these issues and these credibility issues that a lot of folks have with the CDC. But is it is it right to use the word lie? Is that an appropriate description of what's going on here, Dean? No. Um, you know, when you do... Uh an outbreak response when you do when you do a, a pandemic uh, like this, you know things are going to change all the time, and you know the science will change in a moment's notice. You know, um, and when everything is changing, you're trying to make judgment calls. You're trying to make a public health call, and sometimes you're going to have to change your strategy to things. And you know, um, so you know when when uh, people in the public complain that. The information is inconsistent or they they changed their stance or they made a 180 turn here. You know, usually it's being done because the whole response is changing or we have new information regarding the virus or we have new information on a better mask or something, you know, related to safe social distancing. You know, when we found out that um, COVID was really being transmitted highly through aerosol spray, I mean, that changed everything, right? But here's the thing to the credit of the person that was calling. And I, and I felt this too. You know, uh, I was a CDC health scientist for 20 years, so I have an understanding of what's going on there. And by far, people at CDC put on their pants one leg at a time, just like you and I. So, you know, they're not godlike. They're not, cannot read a crystal ball and all that. And they make mistakes as well. And I think the biggest mistake that they made is when they took the mask off, I knew that they would never get that mask back on or it'd be increasingly difficult to do so. And that was the big mistake CDC made. Okay. Well, I do want to provide some numbers for our listeners today. Uh, Over a million Americans have died uh, as a result of this pandemic. As many as three times have permanent health problems, 83 million cases in U.S. total. So those are some big numbers again. So uh, any doubts as to the the fierceness of this pandemic or its reality, uh, we just have to consider those numbers in all due respect. Let's bring Dr. Bob Anders into the conversation now. Bob, you're up there in Alaska. Please give us an update. How is Alaska faring right now during the pandemic? I think uh, similar to the national trends, we've uh, seen a 
continued decrease post the Omicron surge in, in January. Alaska generally, surge-wise, we occur a little bit later than at, at um, the rest of the United States. Uh, so I think Delta had a much bigger impact uh, for us, at, particularly related to hospitalizations and, and significantly overwhelming capacity for hospitalizations during the Delta surge. The case counts were much higher during Omicron, but what we saw here at uh, Alaska Native Medical Center was much lower hospitalization numbers, shorter stays uh, for hospitalizations, and really overall, I think in the state uh, this morning, there's uh, only 26 people hospitalized with active COVID-19 here at AMC. We only have two active cases, which is trending, uh, continues to trend in the right direction. But like Mary noted as well, it, we're fairly stable. We've been ranging probably nearly in the last month in the range of five to 10 active uh, COVID-19 inpatients here at AMC. The one uh, change that we're seeing a little bit here in the last few weeks is that the case counts in the rural areas or the uh, most of the communities off the road system are experiencing a higher case counts than what we are seeing in the urban areas, which is different than what we've seen in the rest of the uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, rural Alaska, unlike many other states, it's a unique situation where the vaccination rates were extremely high in rural Alaska versus urban or on the road system here in Alaska, which I think uh, gave a lot of prote protection at that time. Also, rural communities embrace testing and much higher testing rates in rural areas. So a lot of the geographic um, advantages of isolation were used um, as a strength point in rural Alaska when you only have a single point of entry or a couple ways to get into the community. Testing was really deployed um, extensively and protected those communities along with uh, once vaccinations were available. But we are seeing increased case counts and watching that closely, particularly in rural areas right now. Well, it's it's really uh, promising to, to know that there were such high vaccination rates in, in so many Alaska Native villages and that precautions are being, being maintained. And uh, Bob, what are some current measures that are being undertaken in, in some of the Alaska Native villages to, to combat the, the pandemic and where we're at right now? I think it's it's highly variable. You, you know, here at AMC, we travel in patients from all over the state, so really have to keep track of different regions, have different uh, implementation of mitigation measures, whether testing's required in order to return to their home community and have a negative test, or time periods in the in the hub communities prior to going to the villages. So I think there's a lot of variability across Alaska on, on the. Uh, measures that have been taken to protect the communities. Uh, like Dean was noting, I, I think in, we're unique in tribal health in many of the areas. Tribal health did the contact tracing and, and are still doing, uh, you know, result notification. So I think we've been much more active in that area, as well as when there are outbreaks, you know, testing everyone in the village, you know, in an isolated community like that can do testing and contact tracing at a, a uh, entire community level, which I think has been beneficial, and that activity is still ongoing. Similar to nationally, I think a lot of the mitigation measures related to masking and spacing and, and gathering have been relaxed in many communities now, um, but they're still following it closely, and I think uh, dependent on the local com uh, conditions in that community, that may change, uh, and I think they've changed relatively frequently. So unlike kind of 
at, at a national level, the desire to change quickly has been less embraced, but I think a lot of local communities are really taking their local conditions into play and re-implementing those measures when they need to, when the case counts go up. Well, Bob, you mentioned uh, Alaska is is such a large state and uh, remote, isolated communities. So I'm, I'm curious to know if that creates some unique challenges with regard to doing some of this tracking and contact tracing uh, that might be different than, than other parts of the country. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, we are going to have to take a break here in just a short 30 seconds or so. But when we get back from break, Rob, I'm going to have you respond to just some of those unique challenges that uh, Alaska faces with regard to some of this tracking and contact tracing of the virus. And folks, please, if you've got a question or a comment for our show today, please reach out 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. We've got four guests on today, and they're giving us some really good information, really helpful insights in terms of where we are at right now in the COVID-19 pandemic. So please give us a call now. As you know, once the show really gets moving along and callers start calling in, it's hard to get your your call on the air. So if you call now, we do have uh, our lines are open. You can definitely get through to our producers. I'm Sean Spruce. We're going to be back right after a short break. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, StrongHeart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by StrongHeart's Native Helpline. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to join in on our show today, talking about the most up-to-date perspectives on the COVID-19 pandemic. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open. Before we went to break, we were listening to Dr. Bob Anders, and he was describing uh, some of the issues up there in Alaska. And I, I really want to know more about some of the unique challenges that uh, Alaska faces with regard to doing the tracking and some of this contact tracing, provided that the state is so large, communities are often isolated and remote. Bob, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and I, I think at times there's a... Uh a tendency to focus on the challenges, but I, I, I want to touch on the, the potential strengths. Um, you know, there are, like you said, over 250 remote villages, mostly only accessible by plane or, or boat uh, when the season uh, changes. But these communities have been there for thousands of years, and um, I think what what I saw is the strength of those communities in responding to this. They have the challenges, and I'll speak to that as well, but, you know, I think they have natural community leaders from elders or whaling boat captains or other leadership that could communicate well with the communities, as well as that geographic isolation actually helped in in kind of isolating cases and doing contact tracing and testing in the regions. 
that natural community leadership, I think, really helped with uh, the vaccination rates and embracing preventative medicine, knowing that uh, access to care may be a, a challenge in those regions. And from our standpoint, uh, with the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium and Alaska Native Medical Center, I felt in many ways, you know, listening to the communities and, and they would let us know what tools they needed um, and we would give them the tools they needed, whether it be PPE or testing or vaccination and letting them deploy it in a way that most protected their communities. So I think there was a lot of strength uh, in, in those communities. We saw that even with the vaccination, the local communities were able, because of the Sovereign Nation Supplement vaccine, uh, to prioritize in a different manner than what even the CDC recommended because they knew their communities and they knew in some areas that pilots were key. And so they were um, first, in, you know, early on in getting vaccinations or uh, particular culture or language bearers and, and getting vaccinations early and using a different priority list that made sense to the communities. So I think they showed incredible strength um, that has been there for thousands of years. Uh, the challenges, like you identified, is the remoteness, uh, the access to healthcare, it can be challenging, particularly if you need something more than the village clinic can offer and the travel entailed with that and working with the communities as the Anchorage hospitals many times um, as the tertiary care center were full, 100% uh, full or holding people in different locations. And here at ANMC, we had alternate care sites and trying to coordinate with the regions so that we would bring in those patients that most needed our care here. And then I think that the infrastructure is a huge challenge. I think that's been, uh, you know, COVID has really highlighted water and sewer access is critical uh, in these communities. We still have 30 communities without running water uh, or sewer, and that is an extreme challenge when everyone's telling everyone to wash their hands and there is no running water. And, and the ability to get in and housing infrastructure leading to, you know, multi-generational overcrowded housing in many of these rural communities, which present a high risk uh, in those communities. But I think that that challenge that COVID brought about, I think, uh, kind of brought to the forefront this silent epidemic of lack of infrastructure in rural communities, which hopefully okay. the infrastructure bill can help with that as well. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for all that information. And I really appreciate that you focus on the strengths and the leadership that has been demonstrated in so many of these uh, indigenous communities there in Alaska with regard to the to the tracking. And you mentioned, you know, focusing on the pilots and, and so often that those folks are just the link between all of these communities. I'd like to um, go back to to Mary here. You know, we had a caller earlier, Mary, who who mentioned that, you know, there is a lack of trust right now amongst some Americans with regard to the public health information that's coming out there. And I, and I want to ask you in terms of just that fight for information that is so necessary, um, how how do you folks uh, there at the Association of American Indian Physicians and, and these other organizations that you work with and represent, how do you address that, this this fight for information, good information, quality information that people can trust when there is so much, unfortunately, distrust right now with regard to the information that, that we're getting with regard to the pandemic? Well, AAIP, Association of American Indian Physicians, has a, we have a campaign where we are recruiting doctors. We have recruited doctors from each area of the country, recognizing that 
we're more likely to listen to the folks who um, who seem more like like us, even uh, tribally, right? So we have campaigns across the country um, to speak to people about um, about that, the vaccine and why it's important and why you can trust us. I mean, I think it's really important to recognize that even us, even if we are native providers, we still face some of the same issues that people have on mistrusting the institutions and the and the government. So we're trying to buy, um, get past that by this this camp this um, uh, vaccine campaign and reaching out to people, not only um, nationally with these the social media messages and television and radio messages, but also locally by holding and sponsoring um, events in our communities. Um, we have um, we've had task force meetings with different provi- with providers um, early in the uh, in the pandemic, which was helpful as um, well. But mainly, uh, you know, in Duluth, Minnesota, where I live, we're doing something called a um, it's it's like a mistrust expo, but we're going we're calling it um, Mino Bimadazi, and it's to be well. And it's actually a uh, I think it's it's kind of a cool idea that I hope other people start doing. We're bringing together doctors and scientists with the general public, not to talk necessarily about um, COVID or the vaccine. In fact, I hope we don't talk too much about that, but to talk about what we do, why. What we do in a medical school, what's being researched up there, what uh, why does a cardiologist do, cardiologists do what they do, what do they do, OB-GYNs, everybody, just to help address some of that mistrust by the general public of medicine and science. Um, we'll also have a traditional healer there, recognizing how powerful our own medic- medicines are. And again, breaching the walls or breaching that barrier that stands between all of us. Those are some of the ways that I know to break down the mistrust. Mary, thank you so much for that added information. I'd like to bring another guest into the conversation now. We have Dr. Lawrence Eastburn. He is in Washington State, and he is the physician and medical director for the Macaw Tribe. And Macaw just reopened to the outside public about a month ago. Uh, Dr. Eastburn, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. So where are you at now in terms of safety measures? Well, as you were just uh, stating, we opened back up on April 1st. Um, We still have uh, some advanced testing. We were very aggressive with testing. We were very um, uh, forthright with the community and had a 87 to 88% vaccination rate for those uh, eligible. Uh, The chairman and council have been very aggressive. As you were saying, I mean, we were, were remote. This is a remote uh, tribal community, approximately two hours from the closest hospital, four to four and a half hours uh, from a major medical center. So I agree with uh, Dr. Onder in saying that uh, the good things that came out of the COVID crisis for us here in Nia Bay was the uh, chairman and council, the health director, medical director, aggressiveness of supplying supplements to the elders and everyone with underlying diseases early on, um, the aggressive vaccination that we've uh, uh, undertaken. Um, We had a field hospital in place if necessary, if the local hospital could not take our patients. So we really uh, looked at uh, the tribes and looked to the elders uh, to make sure uh, that we had everything in place to deal with the COVID here in Nia Bay, uh, because it was such a, a remote area in trying to get patients with one ambulance, uh, you know, we would have to fly people out if uh, they were truly ill. Um, so we've been very, very blessed here. 
Yeah, it sounds like it. Just uh, wonderful to hear these updates. And and I'm interested, um, Lawrence, in terms of the, some of these folks that have compromised immune systems and you know, now that that public gatherings are happening again and people are being encouraged to get back out and do things and socialized, socialized. But of course, with some folks with compromised immune systems, um, what do they need to do in addition to wearing a mask to take adequate precaution if they do have a compromised immune system? Well, I think that's a great question. Number one, absolutely, we recommend that they wear a mask in any setting that they might likely be exposed, washing your hands, maintaining the six-foot distance. Uh, We also continue uh, supplementation. We have a natural path here. Uh, We've been supplementing monthly for the last two years to make sure they had preventative uh, measures in place uh, to prevent COVID. And as you were talking earlier, we have been very aggressive with this second booster. Uh, We hold clinics every week. Uh, Thursdays uh, are vaccination days. Uh, We'll go out to their homes if they can't make it uh, to the clinic. Um, So we're pushing, uh, once again, the vaccinations to us is foremost in our prevention of the COVID. Earlier, I asked um, one of our guests this whole idea of new normal. And, and Lawrence, what do you consider new normal? And, and when do you think we'll, we'll finally reach that point? Well, for us, I think that right now we're seeing a little uptick in the flu. I think that what we will see is that uh, starting in the fall, that the vaccination will be a combination at some point in time of both the flu shot and some variant of the COVID vaccination, and, and it'll be ongoing. Uh, So I think that uh, making sure that all of our uh, elders and everyone uh, in the community has had their vaccinations, not only COVID, but their flu. Uh, Once again, prevention is key here. Uh, The new normal be those that are elder, those that have underlying health conditions, are going to be strongly recommended to wear the good mask. Um, And we supply uh, because of uh, uh, our funding uh, through IHS. Uh, We've been uh, afforded uh, thousands of masks that we can utilize. Um, We've been holding uh, monthly, uh, like I said, supplementation, but we also include in that hand-washing material, Perel, and other uh, hand soaps for the uh, uh, community. So I think that will be the new normal. I mean, I agree that when we get into the fall season, when flu is up, I, I think that we would recommend that most people wear a mask. And, of course, here at the clinic, we're still under the mandate that all of us wear masks. Now, what about airplanes, visitors to hospitals? Do you think we're ever going to stop wearing masks in those situations? Or do you think that's just good public health to, to have people masked in, in tight, close environments like that? Or in a hospital setting where you have illness and, and you just have some people with very serious health concerns? I think that we're going to see masks in medical settings for quite a while, if if not forever. Uh, from what I understand on the airplane, I would really like to see dedicated studies done to see whether or not the air on an airplane is actually cleaner than we think. Um, you know, you think that you're sitting with uh, 300 people, uh, somebody coughs, is that spread or is it picked up extremely quickly through their filters? Um, I don't have that answer. It's it's one that, you know, we see needs to be answered. We were talking about the, the 
especially in our native communities, some reluctance to agree with the federal government. This may be one of those areas that we need some dedicated studies to actually see whether being on the bus or on the airplane uh, is the mask needed or not. I would say if you're at high risk, if you have underlying disabilities, I would continue to wear a mask on an airplane once again for a long period of time. And I'm also curious to to know, Lawrence, there in Macaw, having just reopened, what was the what was the attitude there? The response in the community were they excited? Were they happy? Were they cautious? Cautious? Optimistic? How did they, they How did they approach it? I think optimistic for sure. Happy for many that have not been able to utilize their uh, fishing, uh, recreational fishing. Uh, this is a big community. Uh, for visitation, for hiking, and uh, we've been lacking that for some period of time. Cautious, yes. Uh, Initially, we started out that for you to get uh, onto the reservation that you had to supply your vaccination card. We did that for several weeks, and then with no upticks, uh, we decided to uh, actually take down uh, our um, booth, that we would stop. It's one way in and one way out here in Nia Bay, so that was very helpful during the uh, COVID. Um, So I think that uh, optimistically happy is uh, the nature of the Macaw community at this time. Okay. And I'm going to bring it back over to Dr. Mary Owen. Mary, we've got time, we've got about another minute before we are going to have to wrap up the show, but I would like to give you a chance to have the last word. And I want to ask you, Mary, what would you like for our listeners to come away with from today's show, more than anything else, what would you like them to get from our show? To be, um, as uh, we just heard from our last caller, to be optimistically, you know, people are happy. We want that. We want our communities to be able to come together, but we have to do it safely. So, um, and recognize that um, that uh, the virus has not left us. It is still uptick or going up in our community. So we still need to protect one another. We know how to do this. We've come together as our vaccination rates have shown. Um, and we just need to keep adhering to protecting our communities as we know, as we've always known for thousands of years. So stick to those, keep those masks on as long as this is present, as long as your public health and your, your tribal clinics are telling you to and, um, and uh, get vaccinated. Thank you for allowing that last minute plea to our communities. Absolutely. And we are going to have to end the show. That's all the time we have. But I would like to thank my guests, Dr. Mary Owen, Dean Seneca, Dr. Robert Anders, and Dr. Lawrence Eastburn for the latest updates on the COVID-19 pandemic. We invite you to tune in again tomorrow when I'll be learning about using cultural connections to help improve your mental health. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Stay safe and thank you for listening. COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. 
If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. CMS program. Ikayur minyarasi, ikayur sahasi diabetic tune. Nunakitinitosi. Ilatiminyakosi. Contact Lua local Indian healthcare provider. Kaisakangwasi tourlua healthcare.gov. Nakakila on the 1 800 318 2596. Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.